Bibles in the chairs in front of you. Feel free to grab one of those. And if you would like it, you can also keep that Bible. Um, one thing we do here is we stand at the reading of the Word. We do so because we believe God's Word is fully inspired, uh, given to us for the purpose of equipping the saints. Uh, so I ask that you would go ahead and stand as we read Revelation chapter 5. One thousand thirty in my Bible. Revelation five. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures, and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and a golden and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing and heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever and the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshiped let me pray Oh, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the word that you have given to us. Inspired, breathed out by you, that we would have pictures like this, revealing to us your Son, Jesus Christ. Although crucified now reigns at the right hand of the Father. Worthy to open the scroll, to break the seals. God, we thank you for this text. Lord, I pray for wisdom today as we gather and as we read and we study your word. May we grow in our confidence and our boldness because of this text. May this text place our hearts at rest. May it give us peace and comfort. God, we thank you that right now we know that in the midst 
of the tribulation of this world, in the midst of death, in the midst of suffering, that your Son rules at the right hand of the Father. And Lord, we know that He's bringing all events, all of history to the end where He will return once again to gather all who have believed in Him. People from every tribe and tongue and nation who will dwell with You forever in the new heavens and new earth. Be with Chris now as he preaches. Uh, Strengthen his voice. God bless the preaching of Your Word. In Your name, Jesus. Amen. It's easy to look into a passage like this and to read these two chapters even that we've looked at the last few weeks and just go, man, we are, we are so wholly un- inadequate to even talk about this in a way that does it justice. To be able to talk and describe what is indescribable, what is, what is, what is before us in this passage. And as I said last week, as we think about this vision that God gave to John, I, I know I was, I was tempted to think, man, what would it have been like to be there, to be John, to be caught up in the Spirit, and to see, have, to have the King of Kings and Lord of Lords pull back heaven for a moment and say, John, I'm going to give you something that will comfort you in your sorrow and your suffering and your trials and your tribulation. I'm going to give you a vision of something that will be a comfort to my church throughout all time until I return again. And then I thought, we are like John, right? He wrote this down like, like God had asked him to do so that we can see exactly what he saw. And here it is before us. How do, we, how do we somehow have the appropriate amount of awe and reverence for something like this? Really, I mean, how do we, how do we do that this morning? How do we, me standing here and you sitting there, how do we, how do we somehow say, God, help us to see this for what it really is. Help us to see and experience it like John and like God would have us experience it in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our pain. And there is much, much suffering and pain right here in this room and in our country and in our neighborhoods this week, just this week alone. And so God, I'm just praying as I'm going through this, God, please help us to see this for what it is. Help us to know what John saw and to to know why God would want us to see this, to experience the very presence of God in heaven as it is shown here. Last week we said that John is giving us a, the the, the book of Revelation gives us these, these different camera angles, it gives us different aspects of the same story of redemption. And last week we saw as the heavens were peeled back and John got to see, we saw God sitting on the throne in the midst of chaos, as we've just talked about. And we saw God on the throne in all of his glory and all of his beauty, and he was being worshipped. And we saw that this is, this is what we did this morning, right? As we sing, as we pray, as we speak of God's word, as we fellowship together, as we take offerings and celebrate communion, our worship is joining with the worship that's going on in heaven of this great and glorious and sovereign king who doesn't miss one tiny little detail 
in all of history, in every single aspect, I mean every aspect of your individual life this morning, God is sovereign and he's working in all of it. This is our only hope, amen? If we do not have a sovereign God who is working in all of this stuff, that means everything you've experienced this week, all the tears that you've shed, all the angst inside of you is for nothing. It's for nothing. But we have a God who says otherwise. We have a God who's working out history in our lives, in our midst, in this moment, and for all time. And God wants us to see it, evidently. He wants us to see this. And that's why he gave John this vision. He wants us to say, fear not. Fear not, kids. It's going to be all right. I've got this. Trust me. Cry tears of joy, cry tears of sorrow, and lean on my everlasting arms. I've got this. Revelation chapter 5, verse 1. The first thing we see in this passage, we're just going to go through, and we're just going to read through and talk through, and then at the end we'll do what we said last week. Let's see, what is this about? Why did John, what's the point? Um, Why would John want us to see this? Why would God reveal this to us? It says that he saw... John, so this is a continuation of what he saw last week, caught up in the spirit. He saw God seated on the throne last week, and it picks up right there. He's seeing this grand vision of God, but now we're going we're gonna to pan this, this little camera angle out a little bit bigger. And he says he saw God on the throne, the one who was on the throne, and he had in his right hand, which in the Bible, the right hand of the king was a, a sign of power and authority a sign of protection. And so in God's right hand, who is sitting on the throne in heaven, is a scroll. And the scroll, it says, was written on every every part of it. There was nothing, no space left. Nothing was left. It was written on the front and on the back, within, without. It is completely covered with writing. And the scroll is sealed with seven seals. The picture that, John, that God wants John to see is that God holds, and we know this because of Ezekiel 2 and Isaiah 29, and we don't have time to read. There's so much Old Testament background. And so, as I said last week, I gave you the passages. You can read them this afternoon. Daniel 12, Isaiah 29, Ezekiel 2 pictures this, that God holds, what this, what this is about is that God holds all of history in his hands. It is completely settled, and he has it all. It's so this picture of the scroll that is completely covered, which is an Old Testament imagery. This picture is a picture that that he's holding all of history in his hands. It's completeness. It's fullness. And it's sealed with seven seals. And in those days, a, a scroll like that was sealed with the seals, and only the one who was qualified could open such a letter. Not just anybody could open it. In fact... I was reading this last week that if, if someone who was not qualified would open such a letter sealed by the king, they would be immediately put to death. It was a serious offense. You could not do this. Only the one who was qualified to open it can open it. And so we see this, this great king on the throne, the scroll in his hands, the completeness of history it is sealed which brings us to a dilemma. 
we see John says, and then I saw a strong angel. Not just any angel. I was thinking about that. Like, what's a strong angel look like? You know, like, what's the difference? Does he work out a little bit more? I don't know. But, like, I don't know what this is. But, but the strong angel showed up that day, right? And, and John is he's giving us these, these pictures. God is giving John these pictures for a reason. He's saying there's a strong angel. Like, this is the, this is the dude that won all the contests. This is the angel of angels. And he's the one who's crying out in this loud voice, it says. And he's saying, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? John wants us to see, God wanted John to see and us to see that that the strong angel, obviously because he's asking the question, is not qualified. So if the strong angel's not qualified, none of the others are either, right? It's kind of the conclusion John wants us to see that that there's no one. And then he goes on to go, and no one in heaven, on earth, or under the earth was able. That, that pretty much covers everything, right? On earth, under the earth, in heaven, there's no one who is able to open the scroll and to look into it. In other words, no one is able to open up and peel back the veil so that we can see history. So that we can see what will take place. No one is worthy. The idea of opening this scroll was the idea of inaugurating the things that are actually written in it. Does that make sense? That the picture that John has given is that history is contained in this scroll not literally again, figuratively, it's contained here and unless someone opens it, it will not unfold, like it will not happen. And so the, the one who opens it is the one who can un, not only open the scroll, but unveils or unleashes the things that are written in it. But it says there's no one able to do this. And John, it says, begins to weep loudly. You know what that's like. You've probably had those moments, but he is absolutely distraught. I was trying to think of how to have us feel what John felt. And I have no adequate illustrations. There's no way to understand that. And so just a tiny thing, this is like one-tenth of a way to try to understand maybe a little bit of what it would feel like for John and ought to have felt, would have felt like for us to for the first time see this unfold and, and to find out there's no one who can, who can unpack history. There's no one who can open the scroll. I was thinking about, um, this is so inadequate, but uh, if you read books or you watch like TV shows, um, you, know, you know when you get to the, you know like there's a storyline unfolding and there's like things that, there's mysteries, there's things that you can't figure out but you're in anticipation is, is he going to live? Is he going to die? What's going to happen? And, and you're, you're going throughout, if you're a TV show watcher, you know, you're going throughout the, history, the, 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 the season, and you're getting, you're getting all these details, and, and every week you, you plop down in front, you're going, are we going to find out this week? Is it going to come? Like, are we going to know? Is he going to live? What's going to happen? You know, are they going to get married? Are they not going to get married? Like, all these things unfold, right? And we, and we can find ourselves caught up in these little dramas, right? And, and we get to the season finale or to the last chapter of the book, right? Now, 
Now, in, in, in the real world, it's a setup, right? We know that, because they're going to they're gonna unveil stuff, and then they're going to leave us hanging again. But the same is true in a series of books, right? I mean, you get to the end, you're like, yes, oh, no, what just happened, right? But let me just say, that's really what the Old Testament was like, right? God was revealing things, setting up covenants with his people, right? Showing them things, and they were in anticipation of the fulfillment of the promises of God, and they would get to certain moments, certain pinnacle moments in history. Not yet. Not yet, right? This sort of up and down. When is the Messiah going to come? When is the hope of, of our people going to arrive and relieve our suffering and save us from sin and death? When is this going to happen? It's a sense of anticipation. And I would imagine John in that day, is, it has all of this background sort of working in there. And he's getting to the season finale, to the moment. And God says, John, I'm going to reveal to you, I'm going to show you all the rest of history. I'm going, to, I'm going to show you the end. I'm going to show you what's going to take place. And then no one can open the scroll. That's just a little bit of a, to try to feel in a tiny way, but with way more seriousness what John felt. No one can open the scroll. And John is completely distraught. He is weeping, but without, it seems, any delay. Almost in the very moment he begins to weep loudly, also an elder pipes in. An elder immediately says, and one of the elders said to me, weep no more, John. Calm down, John. I was at a football game last night, and we had some kids get hurt, you know, and you're out there on the field, and they're like, there's panic, and it's like, calm down, just, just relax a minute. We've got it covered. He says, behold, and John sees, behold, see, look, John, here he is, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. In other words, John, there is one. There is someone who can open these scrolls. There is someone who can break these seals, and he is the lion of the tribe of Judah. In Genesis 49, it describes the, the, the tribe of Judah. As we look at the Old Testament, we see that God raised up a people and made a covenant with those people, and in that within those people, he preserved and in particular covenanted that that one family tribe of people would be the line through which he would fulfill all of his promises. It would be through the line of the tribe of Judah that, that God's Messiah would come. And in, and in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God promises David. He says, David, there's this continuation of kings that are going to be on the throne, but there's going to come one, David. From you, from the tribe of Judah, there's going to come one, and his reign will be forever. It will never end. It will be an everlasting reign. And so here we see it unfold. John is being told by the elder, look, this, this is the one. He's from the line of the tribe of Judah. In Genesis 49, it calls Judah, the, the tribe, the actual Judah, the son of Jacob, it calls him a lion's cub. And God preserves him 
and preserves his family, and here is this lion of the tribe of Judah, which is a picture of a conquering lion, right? The lion is at the top of the food chain. He conquers everyone. No one conquers him. This is the picture of our Savior. He is a, a conquering lion, so, and he's conquered, it says, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. But then John turns, and he sees something else. How has this lion who conquers, how has he conquered? And what qualifies him to open the seals? Verse 6. It says, Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. There's this really crazy kind of epic little picture here. Jesus, this conquering lion, he, he is himself the key to unlocking the mystery or the story of history. And yet, he also turns out to be the key or the center of the story himself. He ends up being the reality of the story. And this, this king, this the center of all of history, the one who has the authority to unlock it, is, is himself the fulfillment of it. And it says here that he's a conquering lamb, but he's also the way in which he conquered and what qualifies him to open the scrolls is he's a, a lion, I should say. He's a lamb that is standing as though he was slain. That's a crazy picture. You would think if you would see a lamb that was slain, John would have seen this lamb. You can imagine it, this white woolly creature on the ground with blood all over it because he's been slain. And yet this lamb that was slain is standing because Jesus is not dead. He conquered sin and death. He overcame the cross for us. And so here we see this lion and this lamb. The reason he's worthy to unlock, the, unlock history is because he was a lamb that was slain. And he was a lion that conquered. Or, as one pastor put it, he's a lamb, a lion-like lamb and a lamb-like lion. You can take that home and chew on that. But it says he has seven horns. This is, this is a picture from Daniel chapter 7. He has seven horns, which is a, which is a sign of, of perfect and complete power. And so here, this, this conquering lamb, or this lion, this lamb that was slain, has seven horns showing that he, he is total and complete power. He is all-powerful. It says he has seven eyes. We saw that in last week's vision. And these seven eyes, it tells us, sometimes we're like, these, these symbols are really confusing. Not here. He's going to tell us what it is. The seven eyes are the seven spirits. And we saw last week that the seven spirits is this picture of, it's not so much seven individual spirits, but it's a picture, again, the seven of the fullness of the Spirit of God is with him. That God's Spirit is there fully. This is actually an amazing picture. If you were to go this afternoon to the book of Ephesians, and you would see what the four and five unfolds, you would see this Trinitarian work in history. You would see that God the Father plans 
He holds the plan, right? He holds history in his hands. And you'll see in Ephesians chapter four or, or two, uh, or chapter one, sorry, uh, that God the Father has the plan for, for redemption. God the Son, Jesus, he accomplishes the work. He accomplishes this plan of redemption. And then what do we see at the end of Ephesians chapter one? It's the Spirit of God then, as it says here, that goes out into the earth and, and actually applies the work of Christ, carries out what Christ has accomplished on the cross through his death. And here we see this picture of God the Father on the throne, Jesus the Son at his right, in, in between the throne, which by the way, is a beautiful picture of the fact that he's our mediator. Jesus is the one who's ushering us, ushering his people as the elders are there into the presence of God. And so we have Jesus there who accomplished by his death the, the plans of history to redeem a people, to save and to judge. And then we see the work of the Spirit that goes out into the earth. We're going to see that even unfold throughout the book of Revelation in all kinds of ways to carry out the works of God. This is the picture that John sees here. And then in verse 8, it says, And when he had taken the scroll... Just imagine John seeing this unfold. The four living creatures and the 24 elders, they responded. When Jesus steps up and, and takes the scroll and begins to un, unravel it, it says they stepped up and they began to worship him. It says they fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp. Last week it was a trumpet, and here we see a harp, sort of like the trumpet, summoning them to worship. We see not only a harp, but it says that there were, there were golden bowls full of incense. I love this, which are the prayers of the saints. Oh man, oh man. Here we see in the unfolding of history, in the work of God, in the redemption of all people, of his people, what do we see? We see that God's plans, that our prayers are a part of God carrying out and completing his purposes throughout all of history. You want to know why you should pray? You want a motivation to pray? God has sovereignly ordained history, but he's also sovereignly ordained that part of how that's carried out is through the prayers of his people. God has sovereignly ordained that people will be saved, that people will bow their knee and submit their lives to King Jesus, and he's ordained that the way that that comes about is because you're praying for them. Isn't that amazing? God doesn't need you. He doesn't need us. I mean, this, this God does not need anything. He is completely sufficient, and yet... He graciously invites you and me to participate and to be a significant part of his work throughout history of calling people to himself. Man, if you don't, if that doesn't motivate you to pray, I'm not sure the Spirit rests in you, right? I said that really strongly, but man, that's incredible. You think about it. It, it convicts me to think of how how petty my prayers are at times, 
or how little I think of prayer, how little I think of, of actually bowing the knee and, and coming before King Jesus and praying for you or for my neighbor or for my family or for my dad or my mom or my brother or my sister. It, it, it convicts my soul. May it do the same for each of us. And then they sang a new song. They sang a new song. This is a, this is a theme... Man, if you go to the book of Psalms, um, it talks a lot about calling the people to sing to the Lord a new song. When they were, when they were called to sing to the Lord a new song, the themes often in the Old Testament that, were, that, that would be an occasion to sing a new song were, were creation-type themes, things that, that lifted up the fact that God had created the world, had created you and I, and so we sing to the Lord this new song or redemption, when God had rescued his people, they would sing a new song. They would praise him with this new song. Or even judgment was an occasion for them to sing to the Lord a new song. And here we see, as, as history is unfolding, and as we see that Jesus, the lamb, the lion who conquered, the lamb that was slain, is the key to all of history. When we see this, it says they sang to him a new song. God not only gave them, back in Revelation 2.17, he says he, he's giving us new names. Now he gives them a song as well. They sing a new song. And this, this song says, worthy. We, we ended last week with the same words being, uh, the same song in a sense, beginning worthy, we said last week, talking about God who's on his throne. Worthy are you to receive honor and glory and power for you created all things and by your will all things exist that were created and now he's saying and panning out going and worthy, worthy is the son, worthy is, is, the, is the one, worthy are you Jesus to take the scroll, to open its seals, you're the only one qualified to do this for, and why, again for, for you were slain. And by your blood, by Jesus' blood, you have ransomed. That means people were in bondage and slavery. That's you and that's me outside of Christ. We are in slavery to sin. And these people are in bondage and slavery. And it says, but by your blood, by the blood of Jesus, by him going to the cross in your place, dying the death you should have died, by him shedding his blood for the forgiveness of your sins, in, in that Jesus has ransomed a people for God from every tribe and every language and people and nation of the earth. Can I say, in our politically charged country we live in, there is absolutely no room as Christians to be racist at all. Period. Because our God is ransoming. He died and shed his blood for a people from every single tribe and tongue and nation. And when we are in heaven, when we are with him standing around the throne, we will be standing around the throne with a people that are incredibly more diverse than we could even imagine. Isn't that beautiful? And so amongst God's people... There is no room for such things, period. It is in Christ that those things ultimately don't even matter. Only Jesus matters. 
He's the one who reconciles all things to himself. And we see here that he's brought this people, and he says, he goes on and adds, and you have made them, those whom he's ransoming, those whom he's redeeming, you've made them a kingdom of priests to our God. That all of God's people, in essence, are ministers before God. All of us. We are all to minister before God, and they shall reign on the earth with him. This is what they're singing to King Jesus. This is what he's done. This is what makes him worthy because he's died. He's purchased a people for himself and he's made them to be priests. He's, I, I was thinking about this in light of 1 Peter chapter 2. This is the way Peter describes you and I, his, the church. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession. Why? To do on earth what's being done right now in heaven. Why has God made us a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a chosen race? Why is this? Why has he purchased the people and redeemed the people for his own possession in First Peter? It says, so that, this is verse 9, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his glorious light. Isn't that amazing? That's why. So that you would see him like we see him here. You would behold Christ. You would see him in all of his glory. You would be transformed by this reality to the point where your whole life proclaims the excellencies of him. Everything changes here. Everything about your life that used to be all about what's on earth. Frankly, frankly, I think, especially in our country, maybe even amongst you and I right here this morning, we are so focused on such tiny things, aren't we? We make such mountains out of molehills, and here we see history unveiled to say this is what matters. This is what's important. Not these petty little squabbles and these power struggles and all these things going on. No, this is what's important, that your life exists. All of creation, we're going to see, exists to lift up and to magnify the glory of Christ. That's what matters. That's what God's people should be doing when everyone else is fighting and bickering and calling names. We should be focused on him and worshiping him. Jesus' obedience to death has brought about the redeeming of all of his people, and that's what's going on right now. But the vision doesn't stop. We're just getting warmed up. It's a good thing it's getting close to the end because I don't have much of a voice left. Verse 11. Just when you thought, how can it get better? This thing is about to explode. Have you ever been to one of those moments where you thought something like, this is amazing, and then you find out, like, oh, it's getting even better. Like, it's, this party's about to take a whole new, whole new turn here. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels. This, this worship is just going to, like, people are going to be gathering. It says, many angels... This is numbering myriads of myriads. No, it's, just, it's almost uncountable. 
He says, thousands and thousands of uh, thousands of thousands, <laughs> myriads and thousands of thousands, and they're all saying with a loud voice, the same thing, worthy is the lamb who was slain. Notice this sevenfold praise. Again, completeness. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. They're worshiping him for all that he is. He's worthy to receive everything. He is worthy to receive all of your affection and all of your praise. He's the only one worthy. I said last week, if you can find somebody who is more glorious than Jesus, if you can find a God that is more glorious than the God whom we see on the throne, I will worship him. I will. But there is no one who is worthy to receive this kind of worship. And verse 13 says, and I heard every this is amazing. Every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, notice that. He's talking about all of creation, this completeness, everything under, in heaven, on earth, under the earth, under the sea, everything, and they're praising him everything that's within those people. So everything in all of creation is coming to this climax of praise to God, and they are saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And when this is all taking place, it says the living creatures that we described last week, it says they declared amen. That's a way of saying, so be it, God. Let it be. And that would be our prayer today, just like last week. Let it be, God, here on this earth, exactly like it is in heaven. Let this be true, even today, even when we close this time out with communion and worship and singing and prayer and fellowship. God, let it be dripping with this kind of love and passion and glory as we look to the living, living risen Christ who was slain for our sins. And it said, when this happens, they declared amen, and the elders, they fell down and they worshiped him. What other response would there be to such a glorious vision? Why would, why would God want us to see this beautiful picture? Maybe I could just say, if you don't know by now, <laughs> I don't know. But every single thing on this earth and everything that's within everything on this earth exists. Your purpose, my purpose, the purpose of the trees that you drive by today, the ground, the grass, the animals, every single thing that exists, exists to magnify the glory of God as is seen in his son Jesus, the lamb that was slain and the lion that conquered. This has been the climax of all of history. Now you can see why John was so distraught that he would not get to see this. Why would, why, would, why would God want his people to see this? We saw last week that the church, represented in the seven churches of the first part of this book, that the churches were, were, were tempted to become petty, right? They were, they were tempted to be complacent, just like we are. We're tempted to be complacent, right? We're tempted to sing, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. You know, really, right? That's our temptation, right? 
We're, we're tempted to take for granted the fact that God has been working on our behalf throughout all of history, and his ultimate act of work on your behalf was to send his only son to die on the cross that you might not receive God's wrath, but you would see, receive grace and forgiveness and mercy and eternal life forever and ever. We're tempted to just, to just sort of treat that as this ho-hum. We're, we're, tempted, we're tempted to take something serious that shouldn't be, and we're tempted to not take other things that should be serious, not serious enough. Just like those seven churches. There's, they, they, they refuse some false prophets in some churches. Other places, they're like, eh, it's not so bad. And they were suffering. They were churches that were suffering. They were, there were people dying because they believed in Jesus. There were people dying because we live in a sin-sick world. And there's hatred and death and murder and cancer and drugs. And John is able to see and write down for us this beautiful vision of our God who has conquered all of it. Who will one day, who has defeated darkness and will one day put it all to an end and he will redeem and restore all things to the way they ought to be and even better than it's not simply that what was in the Garden of Eden when we sinned and were banished and everything became corrupted by sin. It's not just simply that we will go back to that paradise, but the paradise will be even better. He will redeem it, and it will be better than it ever was. And this is what we long for. This is what we hope for. And I think this is relevant for us this week. Let me just read for you. I think it's beautiful that I was thinking about this just this morning. This is what the Old Testament was, was pointing to and leading to all the while. Listen to this psalm. Um, psalm 96 says, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. This is a, this is a psalm that looked forward to this moment in Revelation and looked forward to now. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord and bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord, greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the people are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. You can picture chapter 4 and chapter 5. He says, ascribe to the Lord, O families of the earth. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory that is due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. This, this little picture and song is going to grow as well. He says, let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exalt and everything in it. Then shall all the trees and the, fine, the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes. He comes to judge the earth, and he will judge the world in righteousness and his peoples in faithfulness. I was thinking, this this morning, I thought about like, that is the picture. That's the fulfillment in Christ right there. Christ, him coming 
opening, opened up and inaugurated the, the redemption history, the plan of God to redeem a people to himself. This in Christ, this is being fulfilled. And one day it will ultimately come to its fullest when he returns and restores all things. I think this week, there is a lot of suffering, as I mentioned. Just like then, in these churches that were in Revelation that were talked about, it's true now as well for us. Um, one of our, let me just give you a little sampling of what's gone on amongst our people this week. Um, one of our pastors in our region, just in Puyallup, Gordy Boslow, uh, his son, whom I've known for several years as a, a worship pastor in South Dakota and Spearfish, his son, young man uh, with a wife and children, had a brain aneurysm and died last night. Uh, I know this week uh, the Corsons have had someone close to their son, I believe, who's, who's passed on. Uh, in our own community here, uh, some of my kids' friends that are at our house sometimes, their dad passed away on Tuesday. Um, there's, there's suffering that goes on, right? And in the midst of that sorrow, we, we realize we live in a sin sick, broken world. And then in, on top of all of that death, we have, we have what's going on in Indonesia, as we heard last week. And the suffering that is going on, I mean, just the overwhelming amount of death in a moment. We, in, in the midst of all of that, we have this little this fight going on in our country and all this bickering and chaos. People hating each other. And you just go, man, what in the world, God? What would you have us do, God? In the midst of that, John was given this. He was given a vision of a Savior who has come. And one day, when he returns, he will right every wrong. In fact, it says that one day in his presence... All of our troubling troubles and our tribulations and our sufferings on this earth will seem as though they were nothing in his presence. In this moment, it, what's going on in heaven, the trials of this world, they look very different. And that's what we long for. But listen, while we're still breathing air in this sin-sick world, we are the ones called to go to people in our neighborhoods and our families, to go to people who are suffering with the gospel on our lips, with the hope of eternal life to proclaim in Christ. We're the ones called to go, to bring comfort, to bring the hope of the world, Jesus Christ, to every person. It's us. And so while we still have breath in our lungs, let us go to work tomorrow with this vision in mind. This is reality. Jesus is reality. And every single person you will see for this whole week until we come back here next Sunday, this is what they need. They need Jesus, the lion who has conquered on their behalf and the lamb who was slain for the forgiveness of their sins. Let's pray.